Brett, well, good morning. It's good morning. so good to be here to celebrate this uh, joyous morning of Asher's baptism this morning. So that was my first time actually seeing an infant baptism. So that was really cool and really fun uh, for me to see that. Um, as TC mentioned, um, I am uh, one of the pastors, pastor in residence. I think that's been uh, just two weeks now. So we're kicking off this new journey here with Roots. It's been a lot of fun. Today's message is a standalone message, so it's not part of any sermon series that we've been uh, doing. So when Pastor TC told me I could preach on anything I wanted, I was like, oh, I was like, uh, here's my chance to make a case that In-N-Out is better than Culver's. Which seems to be, I got one yes back there, amen. That seems to be like a hot debate, like is In-N-Out overhyped? Yes. The burger place. Yes. Totally. Um, I, it, it very well could be. I happen to think it is uh, just a really solid burger. But anyway, anyway. There's the. <laughs> We've got some picture of ramen noodles here. So let's get to the story. When I was in college at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, I had to, um, you know, rely on financial aid uh, to pay for uh, my tuition and my rent and my books and my food. And my family didn't have a lot of money, so there were many, many semesters where I was living off of this stuff right here on the screens, ramen noodles. 25 cents a pack, it could feed you, that's like three meals in a day for a dollar, right? And uh, this was kind of the diet, the lifestyle that I was living in. See up here, you've got um, some of my favorite stuff, the top right, Top ramen, you've got yes. your, your, your shrimp, your chili, your chicken, your beef, your oriental flavor. I honestly don't know what oriental flavor is. <laughs> the bottom is your, your spicy seafood. Bottom left is your spicy Korean. Top left is your Indomie noodles, which is like, a, it's not a broth base, but it's like this uh, fried noodle type. And so that was just all for fun. That doesn't really actually relate too much to my current message. But that's, that's what I was living off of, as much as I like eating ramen noodles back then and now, it's not exactly high sustenance food for, for college students of studying hours and hours and hours. So I was living this, this life of scarcity, right? Where I was poor financially, I had poor rhythms of sleep. Um, I was just feeling pretty poor. It was a season of scarcity. And I think college students, um, I know all of us have different experiences, but if you had an experience like mine, uh, you know, you kind of wonder why we put ourselves through that. We're, we're this season of scarcity where we are uh, just living kind of bare minimum for years. It's like three, four, five years. And I think the, the hope is that coming out of that season of scarcity that we can then go on and get the job that we aspire to get and enjoy a future season of more abundance. I think that's why we go through that season scarcity so that we hope we can enjoy greater future abundance uh, in the future. Well, the title of this morning's message is Hear This Promise. Hear This Promise. Our text this morning is uh, coming from the book of Joel, one of the Old Testament prophets. Before diving into our text this morning, uh, I just want to situate the prophet Joel in relation to some of the other Old Testament prophets, because there's a lot of them, and it's easy to get them mixed up. And so, in your in your Bibles, um, Old Testament prophets are broken up in a, into two major divisions: the major prophets and the minor prophets. And Joel is part of 
what's called the Minor Prophets. Where that word minor just refers to the shorter length of the book. And there's 12 Minor Prophets. Joel is, is the second book in that collection of 12. Now, even as I'm using the word prophet, um, that word can mean different things to different people. In the Old Testament, a prophet was simply God's spokesperson to God's covenant people. Right? A prophet was just God's spokesperson to God's covenant people, Israel. Prophets often received these visions. They would receive these words from God, and they would speak these visions and these words to Israel to call them back to covenant faithfulness with God. A lot of times their messages included a, a word of judgment and hope and future blessing. So we're going to see that today, that Joel is going to deliver a message like that of, of judgment on covenant, uh, God's covenant people in Israel and future hope to them. And in the first chapter of Joel, it will already have laid out what the, the judgment aspect on Israel through a locust plague. Through a locust plague, which I'm going to bet none of us have ever experienced a locust plague before. Maybe a couple of us. Where we pick up this morning is Joel chapter 2, after Joel has already invited Israel back to turn, return to their God in repentance. And now Joel is relaying God's promises to Israel. That's where we're going to pick up today. So if you have your Bible with you, Bible app, or you can turn to the screens, we're going to be in Joel chapter 2, verses 23 to 26. Joel chapter 2, verses 23 to 26. And the promise reads like this. Children of Zion, rejoice and be glad in the Lord your God, because he will give you the early rain as a sign of righteousness. He will pour down abundant rain for you, the early and the late rain as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and fresh oil. I will repay you for the years that the cutting locust, the swarming locust, the hopping locust, and the devouring locust have eaten my great army which I sent against you. You will eat abundantly and be satisfied. And you will praise the name of the Lord Yahweh, your God, who has done wonders for you. And my people will never again be put to shame. The word of the Lord. We read that Joel is prophesying to the children of Zion. Children of Zion. Zion was the name of a mountain in Jerusalem. When we see Zion, children of Zion, it's referring both to the location of Israel and Jerusalem and to the people of Israel. And so Israel had gone through this locust plague, uh, as I mentioned back in Joel chapter 1, verse 4. In that part of the chapter, the prophet writes in, in chapter 1, verse 4, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hoppest locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the devouring locust has eaten. I never knew there were so many different kinds of locusts <laughs> until I read this passage. One wave 
after another. Israel was watching its food source, its crops, its life source be depleted by these different locusts. For Israel, this is a time of deep, deep despair. In Joel 1.8, he writes, Lament like a woman dressed in funeral clothing, one who has lost the husband of her youth. Lament like a woman dressed in funeral clothing, grieving the loss of her husband. Which is, there's kind of a literary thing going on here with, with Joel writing this, but if you just extrapolate that a little bit, locust plague, famine, lack of food, people actually die too as a result of that. So this locust plague brought grief and brought despair at the greatest level imaginable for human beings. And this is where for Israel it felt like all was lost. I know in a room like ours, I know many of us are familiar with that kind of despair, with that kind of loss, that kind of grief. Have you ever been in a season where it felt like wave after wave you were losing? That there was grief, season to season, back to back, that there was challenges upon challenges. If it's all right with you, church, I'm going to share a little bit about what that looked like for me. That, can I do that this morning? Can I, can I be raw and honest with us? So my first season of challenge, my first locust plague, if you will, uh, was about four years ago when my family and I moved from uh, Wisconsin to Los Angeles uh, for seminary. In Wisconsin, I was serving as a worship associate uh, for, uh, for a few years. Uh, and I'm really enjoying, you know, what I was doing, how, how the ways in which I was serving, and had some great mentors and great friends. When we left to California, we didn't know anybody. And so it was really hard for me to be away from that community. But not only so, my wife Alice was working full-time, and our daughter was uh, Penelope. She was two years old at the time. And so we drove, or we flew out there and um, tried to start this whole new community you know, we made a lot of friends, but it was still hard uh, during some of our most challenging times. Because as many of you know, when you move to a new place um, and you don't have a lot of strong friends or family there, things are just hard. And so we experienced that in a, in a really real way uh, in our two years out there. But not only so, uh, going through the actual uh, challenges of, of what seminary proposes entails, uh, the, the theological wrestling, um, and even uh, how I, I learned that a lot of students in seminary, they actually go through a lot of uh, degrees of depression, where some people actually call it cemetery instead of <laughs> seminary. Have you ever heard that? It's like the place where you go for your faith to die. And, you know, thank God that God is a God who revives. Amen? And so it doesn't end there. But if you go through that journey, you will be challenged. But thank God, he is a God who can raise the dead. And so I'm grateful for that experience, but there was many, many nights where um, I just could not see the other side. 
of, of, of the tongue. Fast forward to where we are here. So that was four years ago. We've been in the Twin Cities for about two years now. My next season of really challenging uh, despair and grief was when we moved to St. Paul, I had been contacted by a, a church here in St. Paul if I would plant their second church campus. Uh, at the time, it seemed like a really awesome fit, right? They were a uh, second generation Hmong American church plant, looking for a Hmong pastor who had been seminary trained, who had spent ample time outside of the Hmong church. Hey, look, I was a Hmong pastor, seminary trained, who had spent ample time outside the Hmong church looking to serve at a second gen Hmong church. There you go. So we kind of checked each other's boxes on paper, and we were excited. What happened was when we got here, we discovered uh, some, some, some pretty major differences in uh, ministry values and practices with this church. Part of it was our acclimation to the church, to, this, to the Twin Cities, because as you know, LA and, or even just the coast in the Midwest is very different. So part of it was just our acclimation back. But even in the short six months that I was with that community, that my family and I were there, I mean, we really fell in love people there. And so when we made what was what felt like the hardest decision in my life to discontinue my role at that with that church, I felt like I had to grieve the loss of relationships. I had to grieve the loss of the community that could have been. <laughs> the only other time I grieved like that was when my mom passed away eight years ago, nine years ago. I didn't think I would grieve the loss of that community to that degree. And so that brings us here, where now we've been a part of the Roots community. And through all of that, through that crazy journey that we've been on, Alice and I, my wife, we've had to continue to remind ourselves to look back to God's promises. That even in times of despair and crisis, in times of deep grief and loss, and we have a God who promises an abundant future, a good future. We have a God who will repay you for the years that the locusts have eaten. And so that's where um, we've witnessed God uh, bringing that reality uh, into, into our life, into our marriage. So the children of Zion, if we return back to our text, they were struck with this locust plague. This was their years of despair and crisis. They had grieved long and hard, just like us, just like many of you. And now God, through the prophet Joel, invites the children of Zion to rejoice because God will send abundant rain on the land. In verse 23 here, we see this, this uh, repetition of that word, rain. He will ascend, uh, give you the early rain as a sign of righteousness. He will pour down abundant rain for you. The early and the late rain as before. For Israel, where there was once scarcity and drought and famine, God was now promising 
a future of abundance and celebration for God's people. Joel is emphasizing that abundant rain was coming, and when abundant rain comes, there would be a lot of crops. When there's a lot of crops, there's more food on our table. When there's more food on our table, our gatherings are more filled with joy. Our, our meals are more satisfying. There's more vibrancy in our lives and in our experiences and our families. So church, hear this promise today that in seasons of despair or crisis, we have a God who promises future hope, future abundance, future blessing for his people. Amen? Amen. 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 Some of us, some of us are saying, Hold on there. Hold on a minute. I thought I saw in this text that the great army was sent by God himself. You've got to put the brakes on that for a second, right? That God says, I sent the great army against you. The locust plague. To better understand why Yahweh would do this, why Yahweh sent the locusts, we have to recall the unique relationship that God had with Israel. That Israel was God's covenant people. That of all the nations of the earth, God had chosen Israel to be his people and that he would be their God. And that was their agreement. That was their covenant. So God's purposes through this covenant was to bring forth the Messiah out of this people group, that Jesus, the Messiah, would be born out of this people group that we call Israel. And Jesus would offer to the world salvation, shalom, justice, peace, and righteousness. And so that is what was driving God's relationship with his covenant people, Israel. So as we look at God's judgment, on Israel with the locust plague. We might even say um, God's wrath on his covenant people, Israel. As we look at that, we have to understand God's judgment on his covenant people in light of these points on the screen here. The first point that we note is that God's wrath is not a divine attribute of who God is. God's wrath is not a divine attribute. Here's what I mean. God's wrath or judgment is not eternal because human sin is not eternal. Humans are not even eternal from the beginning of time. Rather, God's wrath is situational, and it manifests when humans sin. So wrath is not inherent to God's eternal character. It's not a divine attribute of who God is. In contrast, 1 John 4, 8 says this, God is love. So therefore, love is inherent eternally to who God is. Love is a divine attribute of who God is. Our second point, God's wrath is personal, as in it's not mechanistic, it's not automatic, it's personal. And therefore, God's wrath is inherently relational with Israel. God's judgment is relational with Israel. It's only when his covenanted people turn away from his instructions 
that God's wrath is manifested to correct. And it aims to bring salvation through Israel, through Israel's Messiah. So there's a, an inherent relational quality to God's judgment. It's not ambiguous. It's not arbitrary. It's not directionless. There's a purpose to God's judgment on his covenant people. Up there on the screen is number three. God's wrath includes manifestations within the natural order of creation. So when humans commit sinful thoughts or actions or values or create sinful systems and societies or structures, they experience the natural ramifications of these thoughts and actions and systems through the natural means around them. And in light of God's wrath being a means for salvation then, experiencing God's judgment in the present time through the natural world creation, the natural order of the world, can even serve as a measure of God's grace that then guides us and prompts us to further repentance and to living in greater accordance with God's purposes for humanity. The last point up there on the screen, God's mercies are far, far greater than God's wrath or God's judgment. Listen to this comparison from Exodus 34, 6, where Yahweh passes in front of Moses, and Yahweh proclaims, The Lord, the Lord, a God who is compassionate and merciful, very patient, full of great loyalty and faithfulness, showing great loyalty to a thousand generations, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion, yet by no means clearing the guilty, punishing for their parents' sins, the children and their grandchildren, to the third and fourth generation. Look at that comparison. To show mercy for a thousand generations, but to judge sin for three or four generations is like saying there's no comparison. God's mercies far outweigh God's judgment on broken humanity, God's covenant people. So we've seen through the prophet Joel that Yahweh is a God who does judge his covenant people. And that there's a purpose behind God sending the locust plague. In this situation, there was great despair throughout the land, like a woman grieving the loss of her husband. Halfway through chapter 1 in the book of Joel, Joel invites Israel to, to turn to God, to repent, because repent just means to turn back to God. And finally, the passage we've looked at today, Joel chapter 2, God makes this promise to Israel in this context, that even in times and years of despair and grief and loss, God promises an abundant future, a future of hope and blessing for God's covenant people. Now church, I want to be clear, we as a church, we are not um, we're not ethnic Israel. We're not under that same unique relationship that Israel had with God throughout that time in history. But what we what we can learn about the character of Yahweh, about the Lord from this narrative, is that God is a God who does desire a relationship with us, who does desire to covenant and come to agreement with us, 
he desires to be with his people. Not only that, God is a God who knows what we've lost. God is a God who might even have tabs or a record of how many years it's been that you've been on your season of despair. God knows what's been lost. God knows the degree of the grief of his people. Because in order for God to repay or to give back, he has to know what's been lost. He has to know the time and the years and the quantity. So although God judges his people, God has not abandoned us. And God continues to journey with his people and their loss and their grief. Now for some of us, this message has totally just missed the mark because you know what? Maybe you're in a time of abundance. You're in a time where, where God has been pouring out uh, into your, your situation, into your life, and your marriage, and your job, and your community. And we celebrate that with you. If God has been pouring out, if God's mercies have been so great in your life in this season, we celebrate that with you. For others of us, Maybe we've just entered the season of grief or lament or despair. Maybe you've been journeying through that season like me for what you feel like has been years and years, and there's times where you're ready to kind of give up. You're kind of like, I don't see the other side of the tunnel here. If that's you, although grief and lament now, catch this. Grief and lament are very real, friends. As real as they are, however, grief and lament do not eclipse God's promises for you and for his people. So hear this promise today, church. I invite you to believe this promise. So would you pray with me? Lord God, we confess that as your people, Lord, we at times turn away. That in the brokenness of the world around us and the brokenness that is within us, God, though you desire to be with us, we have turned away. And that we are in need of your mercy. And that your word says your mercies are new every day. So God, we turn to you and we receive the promises that you made to your people. That your judgments are not in vain. God, that uh, for Israel, you desire a, a certain salvation and a certain purpose for Israel. So Lord, we can learn from that today. That God, you are God whose mercies far outweigh anything else, Lord. Any sin, any evilness, and brokenness, God, your mercy and your victory has triumphed over that in Jesus' name. So, Lord, today we receive that and we step into the promise that you have for your people because we know you are a good God. We thank you that all of this is possible through your son, Jesus. And, Lord, as one body, we say amen in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. Amen.